0: church. Good to see you. Hey, listen, I'm getting on a little bit early uh, here today because we've left a little, uh, little extra time at the end of the message. We're going to sing a couple of times. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. So that's going to be our response to what we're hearing in God's word today. And as we get started, I want to talk about um, the fact that there are four kinds of people in the world and very likely four kinds of people that are in this room. And uh, you can see this up on the screen. And we're putting heartache into context. We were going to be talking about that, but really the entirety of the book of Daniel is about heartache. The uh, Jewish people um, have seen their temple destroyed, the the walls of the Jerusalem uh, knocked down, the invading army, the exile of God's people around different parts of the Babylonian empire, uh, now under Persian control by this time. But that's all very much a heartache on the nation as a whole, but also on individual believers in, in God, and I know that there are a lot of people who have heartache here, so as we're thinking about chapter 9, this all relates so uh, clearly, and four kinds of people in the world, four kinds of people perhaps in this room, person number one is a person who has heartache in their life, they have trial, they are facing difficulties in life, and it is the result of sin, that's person number one. Person number two is a person who has heartache in their life, but they, they love Jesus and as best they're able, they're living for him. They're, if they come up with a sin in their life, it's not unconfessed, it is repented of. And so this is like a faithful person to God, faithful to God, a worshiper of him, but facing trial and heartache and difficulties. Person number three is the person who has like so much ease and blessing and prosperity and everything is just going their way despite the fact that they have unconfessed sin, maybe they completely reject Jesus and don't believe at all in God. And yet, you know, the question that we hear in the scriptures, why do the wicked prosper? Why why are things so easy for that person? And I'm sure, you know, at a difficult period in your life, you may even have thought about something like that and just go, you know, like, my life's so hard and I'm trying to serve Jesus. And they're like so much in sin. And yet look how easy their life is. Anybody ever had a person like that in your life? that's person three. And then person four is the person who loves Jesus is following him and seeking his best. They're able to be faithful to him in every way. And they have ease in their life. And you could see that ease and blessing as being the result of their righteousness. You could see it that way, but it's a little dangerous to think of it that way. Now, like I think every person on earth can fit into one of those four categories. And the reason why I'm setting all that up for us today is this. Daniel nine is entirely about the first person. It's, it's entirely about person one. It's a person who is facing heartache and it is the result of sin. And I'm going to this whole exercise to lay this out because there are some of you who are facing hardship and it's not because of sin, but you want to default back into that and you're going over and over again when Jesus has already forgiven you. There may be people in the room that this message applies to directly. And for sure, every one of us, wouldn't you admit this? Just you could admit this with the raising of your hand in a minute. Every single one of us at some point in our life is going to need the discipline of God in our lives. Raise your hand if you believe that to be true. Those of you who are believers and did not raise your hand, you could expect maybe the discipline of God right now for not raising your hand. I'm just saying you've opened that door up by not just simply listening and admitting and saying. And, of course, that's something that we're all going to face. Because at some point in life, we're not going to get it right. And we're not going to believe the word of God. And we are going to do something rebellious. And we're not going to repent of it right away. And God might have to use something minor or major just to get our attention again and bring us back to it. So that frames it all up. Daniel 9 is all about person number one. The structure of the chapter is pretty easy. It breaks down nicely into three parts. Daniel's reading the Bible in the first couple of verses. That's followed by a a prayer of repentance and appeal to God to restore what's been lost in verses 3 through 19. And then God answers that prayer in 20 through to the end of the chapter 20, verse 27. And in that reply, God assures Daniel and the people of Israel uh, that they can have hope in the midst of what we're calling here, their sin caused heartache. They can have hope in the midst of that. And God wants every person in this room to hear exactly the same thing that we can have hope in the midst of our sin caused heartaches. And if you are right now, you know, you're feeling the press of God's hand on you, okay? Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Kids, you know what I'm talking about. If you were raised by parents, sometimes they just came alongside and they just put their hand on you, a little heavy. They just put their hand on you just to remind you that they were there and that what you were doing was not the right thing. And if if, if you're in rebellion against God but you love him, then you're going to feel the press of God's hand On your life because of that sin, and He wants you to know as He's doing that that there's hope, that He loves you, and that He's eager to forgive you of that. That's Daniel nine. Let's pray and commit our time to the Lord, and we'll get after it. Let's pray. A Father, we um, have come to this place to worship You, to gather in Your name, to encourage one another. And to hear, um, hear a word from you. We've set aside this time to do that. And we pray, God, that you would set aside and sanctify this time for your purposes. And God, um, wherever we're at in our walk with you, whatever person we happen to be in this moment. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would use these scriptures to speak truth into our lives. Father, we need you to do this. Can't do it for ourselves. Please speak and change us, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen? All right. Here's the main idea of this. Um, God will give me hope in the midst of sin-caused heartache. Now, let's start at uh, verse uh, 20. We're going to kind of work from the bottom up in this passage. uh, Verse 20 of Daniel 9. Daniel says this, While I was speaking and praying, For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Let's just pause there for a second. And uh, God is answering Daniel's prayer. We're going to look at the prayer in a few moments. But he's answering these. And we're going to see this phrase repeatedly in the chapter. These pleas for mercy that Daniel is praying. And he sends Gabriel a second time to help him understand the vision. The first time was in uh, chapter 8, verses 15 and uh, 17. And what's most striking for me is as he sends Gabriel to speak to him, what's most striking to me is the tenderness of God. What's most striking is the first things that that Daniel hears from the mouth of Gabriel, having come from the Lord. And And it's encapsulated in that one phrase in verse 23 that you ought to have underlined. You are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. And when we're caught in sin, when when God's discipline is coming down on us, we need to know we're loved. And that's what Gabriel says to him. If we're to have hope in the midst of sin-caused, personal sin-caused heartache, it's going to be because God has loved us and because he wants what's best for us and because he's offering us hope and forgiveness. This we need to hear first and right out of the gate and loudest no matter what sin has gripped you god loves you no matter what transgression still has its grip on you he wants you to he wants to free you of that whatever rebellion you are in you are not beyond his reach The blood of Jesus Christ can cover it, it can reach you, it can atone for your sin. No one here has rebelled so completely that you're beyond God's reach. And if you're still breathing, there's still hope for you. Someone in this room may need to hear that. To know that he loves you. And having communicated that and set the stage for it, the answer to the specific prayer that Daniel has comes beginning at verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Well, I'm glad that's cleared (laughs) up. I mean, Daniel's asking for clarity and Gabriel comes and says, you know, this... And I'm going like, that doesn't seem, I don't know if it's just me and my reading and my... That doesn't seem super clear to me. And then and, and, and I wonder how we're going to find some clarity around these verses. But what we have here is a general... Remember, this is coming after. This is Daniel 9. We've already heard Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. We've already seen uh, the vision that Daniel himself re- re- receives in, in uh, Daniel 7. There's a further kind of more specific vision in Daniel 8. And this is a general summary here, a further interpretation of some of the things that we heard in those previous visions. And as we come to these few verses toward the end of this passage, these four or five verses, most of the commentators will agree these are among the most challenging apocalyptic verses to plug in anywhere. Anywhere. And even you do what Bible interpreters do. You take these verses and you compare them to Jeremiah. You compare them to Ezekiel. You look at what uh, John said in the Revelation. You look at the apocalyptic passages in the Gospels. And you try to fit it all in and make it all work. And you just kind of go, I just don't see where exactly this quite fits. It sounds like this. And then it sounds like this. And we're just not sure. And if you read the commentators, dozens and dozens of different interpretations... For how these verses actually all play out. What are all these various elements? What do they mean? What are the weeks? We've already talked about time signatures in these apocalyptic passages. Any references to numbers are more often than not, they're figurative language. And in this case, it's it's true as well. You have a reference to weeks, but you read the prophecy and you realize they're not talking about weeks. They're talking about weeks of years. It's a whole different time frame. It's not a literal week, but a figurative week. When you start to look at all of this, you realize that the anointed one could be various people. Is it Cyrus of Persia? Is it Zerubbabel? Is it Joshua the high priest? Is it Ezra? Is it Nehemiah? There are commentators who think it's any one of these. We can certainly see the threefold division of time. You could look at this and start to, Pick out the things that, okay, I look at that. I I think I can figure out what that is. They have a threefold division of time. There's uh, seven weeks. Again, it's seven weeks of years. So this is actually 49 years. When it refers to seven weeks, it's 49 years. And that's a time, verse 25 says, to restore and build. It's it's, It's the time of the coming of the anointed one. And then there's another division, 62 weeks. That's 434 years, described as a troubled time. Then there's this final one week, verse 27 says, that's a seven-year period of time that is itself divided there's a There's a coming of a prince. Then there's this cutting off. There's an end. There's war. There's desolations. It's a, it's a pretty difficult time. This prince, which could be associated with, and we've already talked about this, the Seleucid Empire, which came after Alexander the Great. And Titus the Fourth, Epiphanes. He could be the prince. Many people look at the four hundred and ninety years that we're looking at in these three time frames and, and saying that uh, this is Emperor Titus. And it, it refers to 8070 and the destruction of the temple, the last temple in Jerusalem. It still has not been rebuilt. He makes a strong covenant, verse 27 says it's broken in the second half of the last week. Again, you add it all up, it's 490 years. And with our approach to future things, what we know is that there can be partial fulfillments of prophecies. We know that there can be um, a, a previous or past fulfillments. And then we know that there is this ultimate and final fulfillment that's gonna come down the road. We know that Antigus the fourth epiphanies could be the fulfillment and probably is. We know that Titus and AD 70 is probably a fulfillment as well, partially. And we await a future one, a final one, another prince, another anointed one, the coming of Jesus Christ. And in fact, if, if you're taking notes and you want to jot down a reference of Matthew 24, 15, and that's right in the middle of Jesus talking about apocalyptic things and the end of the age. And he quotes from Daniel in what he says in Matthew twenty four fifteen. And if you want to spend a lot of time on all of this, and I know that there's all kinds of people are like super fascinated with the end times. And if you want to spend a lot of time, hours and hours and hours, I honestly spend as much time as I could on this locking down different ways to look at it all and fit the 490 years into some period of history. I think it starts here and it ends here. If you want to do that, that's cool. But that's not what is of critical importance in this passage. And the thing we are supposed to get from this, despite my kidding about it, the thing we're supposed to get from these verses is very clear. Because this is the delivery of, of hope to those who are gripped by sin-caused heartache. What's critical here is not that we secure precise dates or try to figure who is who, but to hear the hope. What Gabriel wants Daniel to understand, and the word is used multiple times in these verses, we, we, we're, we're supposed to understand this. And what we're supposed to understand is what Israel needed, back then, what we need still today for the rest of our lives, that all of this is happening. Look now at verse 24 again. All of this is happening to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to anoint, uh, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Those six things, are very clear they're the reason for this vision that's the message that gabriel is delivering you are greatly loved and there's hope and this is it because when i look at that list i just go that's that's my bucket list is this not every christian's bucket list i i want to finish the transgression i want to be how many people want to be done with sin I want to be done with sin. This is like at the top of my bucket list. I want there to be an atonement for iniquity. I I want everlasting righteousness. I I want to have a a ceiling and a permanency to the word of God. I want a most holy place that I can go to where sin and sorrow and loss and pain are no more. That's clear. Verse 24 is so clear. That's the hope that's being delivered to us. And even though it might not look like God is working, and I know there's an argument for that around us, and I know so many people are deniers of God. Even though it might not look like God is working, he's in control and he's bringing about his perfect will in his perfect time. And that's the book of Daniel. That's the entirety of the theme of the book of Daniel. At the coming of Jesus Christ, the culmination of history will happen. God's redemptive plan will be complete and he will set all things right. He will finish the transgression. He'll put an end to sin. He's going to set up this holy place for us and it's going to be awesome. That's our hope. That's our hope. So, God will give me hope in the midst of sin-caused heartache. Notice now, if if I humbly appeal to, to him if i humbly appeal to him all right verse uh, 15 and now this is this is like in the middle of the prayer again we're working from the bottom up and now o oh lord our god who brought your people out of the land of egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned we have done wickedly verse 16 O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword. Everybody's looking down on your people because of this. Become a byword among all around us. Now, therefore... O oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh, my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh, Lord, hear. O oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Man, I read that prayer and I just go like, who prays like that? Who prays like that? I mean, this prayer is desperate. It's humble. It's exercised. It's passionate. It's... it's it's deliberate it's very theologically rich it's based on what he's reading in God's Word it's intentional it's specific in what it asks for and Daniel's approach is what our prayers need to be when we go to God with whatever our needs are they should be passionate they should be desperate they should be theologically rich and although he's asking for so much, he's asking for the, for, for the people of Israel to be regathered in the land, for the land to be rebuilt, and for God to show himself aw- awesome, the awesome God that he is. That's, that's a big request, but he's not demanding it. He's not expecting that God's going to automatically do it, which is what we often do in our prayers. We demand things, we, 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 we expect, just because we pray it, God's going to listen to us. And answer to us, answer us. This is, this is a humble appeal. It is a plea for mercy, and it's not grounded in what Daniel or the nation brings to the table. It's, it's not a, it's, the, the prayer is not a bargaining session with God. It's not like God. I've been faithful to you this week. Tithed, worked for you, went to church. Essentially lived a good life this week. I've been a good person this week. I have a few requests I'd like to bring to you. I mean, we don't pray it in that way, but but we kind of have this attitude when we come. Look how good I've been. Now I have a few things. If it wouldn't be too much trouble, maybe just a few things that I could have. There's none of that in Daniel. His prayer is not grounded in what he or the nation brings to the table, but in who God is and what God has done. Now Look at verse 18 again. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. I mean, how, how would we not underline that and, and get that in the, in the front of our prayer journals and in the front of our Bibles and memorize it and just pray that every time we start to pray? God, what, whatever, whatever I'm bringing to the table today, whatever is on my prayer request list, whatever I bring, I just want you to know it's not coming on the basis of my righteousness. I don't deserve a single thing that I'm asking for. But I'm asking according to your mercy, if you would. That'd be a great way to start every prayer, don't you think? It reminds me too of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You know this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. Lest any, anyone should boast. You see, because the deal is, if, if, I, if, I, if I'm living a righteous life, I think I'm a good person and I go in the bargaining thing with him and, and then I pray the prayer and I make the request and I get the thing that I was praying for, then I can trace that all the way back and I can say, I got the thing because I'm living the life. That's boasting. And this whole thing is set up in a way. That it's based on the grace of God, the undeserved and unearned favor of God. It's completely a gift from him in every possible way. And it's based solely on his mercy and not on anything you do. Everything we have in our lives has been received according to the mercy of God. We're going to come back to that thought again in a few minutes. Here's the thought. Here's what we're building God will give me hope in the midst of sin caused heartache. If I humbly appeal to him, admitting I am the cause of my own grief. Okay, let's pick this up in verse 11. Again, right in the middle of the prayer. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there's not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. There's no room for us to kind of argue the point here. There's no room for us to doubt anything that Daniel is saying. Daniel says that all this has come upon Israel, not because, not because the world is unfair, no, we're facing heartache because, you know, it's just an unfair world. Bad things happen to good people. It's not fate. Things just happen. It's not political movements. It's, it's not the winds of change. It's not, it's not that Israel was just a victim of history. Israel brought this calamity upon themselves. And when we look, when we're person one, that's who we're talking about. When we're person one and have unrepented sin and we're facing heartache at the discipline of God as a result of that. When we're person one, we want to find a cause outside of ourselves. This isn't me that brought this on. It's something else. So then we can find a solution that does not involve Jesus. It's fate. It's history. It's history. It's unfair, things happen, anything but Jesus. Because if we bring Jesus into it, I'm telling you, we have to confront our own sin. We don't want to do that. What Daniel and Israel were experiencing was a result of this covenant agreement they had. God set apart the people to be his own special people. And he made a covenant with them. He didn't make a covenant with any other nation, just with Israel. And the covenant was this, in a nutshell. If you're faithful, I'll bless you. If you're unfaithful, some curses are going to come upon you. In other words, I'm going to discipline you for sin. You will be person one. If you don't follow it, what I've said in my word so the exile was the expected consequence of their disobedience, of them breaking covenant. And what's curious here is that Daniel, in the midst of receiving all of these apocalyptic visions, he isn't so interested out of the gate with getting the interpretation. In chapter 9, that's not what he asks for or goes after. But having read the word of God and revisiting again the covenant obligations that the word contained, he prays a prayer of confession and repentance. And that unleashes God's merciful response and it gives him further divine revelation about all of this. And the order of that is critical. He read the word, he responded in prayer, and God answered in in an amazing way toward him. We have to get that order right, but we're so often unwilling to confess that we're in the way of what God wants to do, and we're unwilling to deal with our own sin issues, and so when, we, when we're having heartache, the kinds of prayers that we usually pray in the midst of that God, give me wisdom to navigate through this. God, give me strength to make it to the end. God, give me endurance. Those are good prayers. God, take this away from me. Help me to escape this. Those those are the prayers that we pray in the midst of trouble and heartache. But maybe what I should pray is... If I'm aware that I have unconfessed and unrepented of sin in my life, just skip all those other prayers for wisdom and grace and, and endurance and, and strength and perseverance and all of that. Skip all of those prayers and just say to God, Am I standing in the way of something here? Is there something I don't understand? Is there something I don't get? That's the pray we, prayer we ought to be praying. In the midst of trials, the number one question asked in the midst of trial is, why? Why am I going through this? And, And the first answer out of the gate, if you are person one, is sin. That's why. It's no more complicated than that. And so don't be surprised if this is you. Don't be surprised if you have heartache in your life and you have unconfessed sin. And I don't think this is gonna be a mystery to anybody in the room. If you have unconfessed sin, you know it. Confess that. We're so stubborn, we're so rebellious, we're so unwilling to ever see ourselves as the problem, as the cause of our own grief. Because sin has corrupted everything. Including our perspective on these things. And so we can live in denial of it all. Well, good news. God still has a covenant with his people. And he's still ready to bless and overwhelm us with great things to assure us of his love. The covenant is rooted in his love. When Jesus came, he inaugurated the Lord's table, which we're going to take at the end of this message. He gave us the Lord's table to remind us of the covenant that God has with us, his people. And he said this in Luke 22, in the upper room, verses 19 and 20, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this, eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten. Saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the, what does it say? The new covenant in my blood. Despite the fact that I've caused all of this, despite sin, he's made a way for us to get out of it. He's given us the new covenant. He's given us the assurance that his son paid the price for us to be in relationship with him. He's given us his unconditional love. He's provided the way. And our only obligation, listen now, is to receive it by faith. God will give me hope in the midst of sin-caused heartache if I humbly appeal to him, admitting I am the cause of my own grief and categorically confessing my rebellion. Verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery, That they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers. Because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. By walking in his laws. Which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. I would say that that is a categorical confession, wouldn't you? And, and in as much as the last part of this chapter, which we looked at first with that apocalyptic vision, and as much as we would say that that wasn't super clear, if we were to create a spectrum of clarity concerning the Scriptures, if we put that, those apocalyptic verses, verses at one end and say, this is, this is the not clear side, then I would take these verses and I would move them all the way over to the other side of the spectrum and say, okay, there's no mistaking what this is about. There's nothing that could possibly be misunderstood. This is such a categorical and clear confession of rebellion. Look at the words he uses throughout here. We have sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We've turned aside. We've not listened. We're, we're subject to open shame. Treachery has been committed against you. We have not obeyed. Not once does he excuse, not once does he try to explain everything anything away and this 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 is what we do we like to excuse we like to explain and this this is a human condition it goes all the way back to the beginning all the way back to the garden and the first human being to ever try to explain their way out of sin and give an excuse was a guy named adam you remember like god's walking in the garden right after they had sinned god's walking in the garden What's up, Adam? They start talking about the sin, and he realizes what's gone down. Not that God didn't already know. And what does Adam say at God's confrontation about sin? The woman. The first excuse for personal sin was to blame it on his wife. The woman, but that's not where it ended, was it? He wanted to compound his explanation and his excuse. And he said, the woman that you gave me. I mean, he's blaming Eve and he's blaming God. And he's setting the pattern for what every human being has done since. We don't like to admit we're wrong. This is a struggle for us. And we live in a world that actually makes excuses for everything. No longer do we do wrong. We just get a diagnosis. I've been diagnosed. Excuses everything. Explains everything. I no longer need to confess. I've been diagnosed. This is why this is how we apologize. I'm sorry, but true. Okay. So I I made a list. Let's just call this eight excuses. Christians make for sinning eight excuses. Christians make for sinning. You want to do this? We're going to do it anyway. It's just my personality. It's who I am. Okay. I just hide behind my temperament. Okay. It's the kind of person I am. How about this? I was just really tired. Well, go to bed at night. Stop sinning. Okay. Get some sleep. Stop using that as an excuse. Um, if my parents were in the first service. So if you knew how I was raised, you'd understand. <laughs> Right, Just blame mom and dad. Blame, blame what happened in your, in your history. Uh, how about this one? At least I'm not as bad as her. You Just compare yourself to someone else. You'll always find someone who's worse than you. That's not hard to do. How about this one? I don't drink and don't smoke, so I've got to have some vices. It's actually one of my favorites. That's why I wrote it down. <laughs> how about this one? Everyone is doing it. You just look at kind of like society around. You just realize, well, this is kind of like a cultural thing now. Everybody does this. It's not really sin anymore, right? And and listen, the title of this series is Resolved, Living for Christ, When You're the Only One Who Is. So that's not a great excuse. How about this one? I'm mature enough in my faith to handle it. You know, this, I read this one, I think it was in relevant magazine about how Christians now feel like it's totally cool to watch, you know, cable shows like, um, Game of Thrones. You just watch that show. And even though there's like explicit sexuality in it and nudity, you can watch that as a Christian because you're mature in your faith. Okay. Now, if you're, if you're a newer Christian, you probably shouldn't watch that, but it's okay to watch explicit, explicit, uh, sexuality. If you're mature in your faith, what kind of screwball theology is that? I mean, I don't even know. Um, how about this last one? I was born this way. And, um, you know what? Actually, that one, that one actually is true. That one's actually good theology. Rome, just jot down Romans five twelve, which tells you we're all born in sin. Dan, uh, Adam's, Adam's sin was imputed to every single one of us. And so absolutely true. Every single one of us is born in sin, but that's not an excuse to keep doing it. Listen, whenever, whenever I qualify or make excuses for or try to explain away an offense against God or against people, I nullify, cancel out the confession or the apology. I was wrong for, fill in the blank. Please forgive me, period, end of sentence. Okay, that's going to work with people, around you, and that's going to work with God. And anything short of that is not an apology and not a confession. So don't pretend it is. So we're not going to do that anymore. Instead, we're going to categorically, unconditionally confess our sin to God. And the benefit is this. Specific and spoken confession helps to mitigate against further sin. Okay, when I speak it out and I'm specific about it with God and with others, I mean, I just get to a point where I don't want to do that anymore. I mean, I, I journal a lot of my prayers, my time with the Lord. I, I journal it out. It helps me to stay super focused. And I'm, I'm writing out. And, and I, I'm just telling you, like my pen stops as soon as I come to the point where I might want to confess specific sins. And I want to just make it general. Please forgive my sins, Lord. Thank you. And how much harder it is to start writing down the actual sins. And I'm telling you, you only have to do that a few times where you go, like someday my kids are going to read this journal. But I don't want them reading this over and over and over again. I just need to stop doing this and stop making excuses for myself. This confession actually helps us. Because it becomes tiresome to keep confessing the same thing over and over and over again. Now listen, the caution here in all of this, we can slip into a little bit of a danger in thinking that somehow we're earning something here by confessing. And verse 18 again reminds us that this is an act of faith, not of good works. I'm not earning my salvation by confessing my sins. I'm not earning my salvation by uh, even, even resisting sin. I'm not earning anything. The apostle Paul wrote this, that in order to gain Christ, he said this in Philippians 3, 9, I must be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, what I do, my righteousness, okay? But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's not the act of repenting that saves. It's not the resisting of sin that saves. Forgiveness is granted by God entirely on the basis of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Because he knew we would never be able to say that. We would never be able to atone for our sins. We would never be able to pay it back. There wouldn't be enough righteous acts in the world to ever make up the gap that was between me and God. So he did it. And so listen, when I pray, when you pray, this is is what it needs to sound like. God, I did this. I recognize it was wrong. I know it was sin. I know I can't make up for it myself in any possible way. I know that Jesus took that sin on himself on the cross and he paid the penalty for it. He substituted his life for mine. I should have died for that sin, but he did instead. And I confess it and I repent of it. Please forgive me. By faith, I believe you will and that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Tremper Longman III said uh, of this point, Jesus' death and resurrection is the foundation of our faith, not our repentance. But God calls us to repent of our sins to maintain a good relationship with him. And from time to time, we may be person one that he may discipline us to get our attention regarding the fact that our relationship with him needs to be maintained. That too is an act of his mercy. And when he does, I must categorically confess my rebellion. Here's the last part. All of this, having been pressed to do so by the simple reading of his word. It's amazing what the regular reading of God's word can accomplish in our lives. The first couple of verses is the way the chapter starts. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books. They didn't have a single volume like this. When he talks about the books, he's talking about the collection of the scrolls that were the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament for us. I perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. I mean, Daniel was reading the Bible, just reading the Bible one day. And God showed him that the exile would end soon, that it would only be 70 years. I mean, by this time, Daniel's already well into his 80s and and he had gone there as a young teen. And and so this is, we're coming up on the end. And he read it in the Bible. And he's showing us the importance of the scriptures here. When he says throughout this chapter, verse 6, we have not listened to what? The preaching of God's word, the reading of God's word. Verse 10, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, speaking of the scriptures, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Verse 11, this is written in the law of Moses. He's talking about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They were not, verse 13, gaining insight by your truth revealed in the scriptures. They ignored the Bible. And the thing is, it wasn't that they didn't know it. This is the most dangerous place for us. It wasn't that they didn't know it. The Hebrew people were immersed in the scriptures. We're not immersed in the scriptures. We're we're immersed in the internet. We're we're immersed in this this, uh, information revolution, this, this, this time in history when so much is coming at us. So many distractions, so much information. They didn't have Spotify and Netflix and the web. They couldn't order books from Amazon and have them delivered to their phone or their Kindle. They didn't have computers or TVs or iPhones. They didn't even really have books. They would have gone to the synagogue to hear the scrolls of of the prophets read to them. And they would have memorized it. That's what they did. They memorized it with with so little information around them. They would memorize it. So there's no way they missed this. Because there was so little to actually know what they knew, they knew really well. The passage that Daniel was reading is actually from Jeremiah 25 and and Jeremiah 29, which lays out the reason for the exile, the timeline for the return. They all knew it would happen if they continued in their sin and rebellion. They knew it was going to happen. And now what we have, what we have in the scriptures is even more complete than what Jeremiah or Daniel knew and wrote about. We have the New Testament, which, which, which fulfills the old covenant. And reveals Jesus Christ to us as the most complete revelation of God that we've been given. It gives us the final word on the reconciliation uh, between us and God. Jesus himself said that his purpose in coming was to preach the good news. This is Luke 4, 43. To preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That was his purpose in coming, to deliver the word of God, to deliver revelation to us. And the content of that, Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. David spoke of the preciousness of the word of God in Psalm 19, 11, and 12. More desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. He's speaking about the Bible. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Unlike the Jewish people of the day who knew the Bible, we face the specter today of biblical illiteracy. So many people don't even know the Bible. And what's tragic about it is that it's far more available to us today than the Bible was available to them. We have it on our phones and on our iPads and on our computers. We can buy countless translations and versions of it. Yet somehow, we're not hearing what God is saying. We ought to know it. Because it's the word of God that presses us to confess our rebellion and find forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ. It's the word of God that tells us of his love and delivers the hope. And we neglect this book to our peril. And we position ourselves when we ignore what it says. We position ourselves to be person number one. Facing the discipline of God. Now let's put it all together here. It's going to come up on the screen. And I would just invite you right now as an affirmation of everything we've heard from Daniel 9 now. To read this with me and make this your affirmation. So let's read it together. Read it out. God will give me hope. Amen. Amen.